Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. Good morning, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Health Connect South Radio. Thanks for making us a part of your day again today, taking time out to get to know these cool healthcare experts that we're bringing to you on a weekly basis. I was really pleased to sit down with a friend and colleague of mine last week, Dr. Helen Gelly, talking about how the hyperbaric medicine that's available to us throughout the Atlanta metro area can help diabetics and cancer survivors who are dealing with late effects of radiation. The challenge for those patients is knowing that this modality is available to them, um, know that it's readily available and paid for by insurance. So uh, we're going to bring back Helen for just a quick minute, and you can hear about how she got into hyperbaric medicine and why it's important. If you know somebody that's dealing with diabetes or cancer um, that might be having some trouble with radiation in the past, get to know Helen Gelly. When someone hadn't gotten better from a chronic bone infection for five years, and then they added hyperbaric therapy to the other conventional therapies, and all at once this resolved. Or patients who hadn't healed a wound for years had 40 hyperbaric treatments, and all at once the wound was healed, was, to me, graphic evidence that they had potential for healing. The use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy to help people heal their wounds and heal infections and heal delayed effects of radiation has really made the career shift that I did a very worthwhile. It was great getting to sit down and talk with Helen about hyperbaric oxygen therapy while we're fulfilling the mission of Health Connect South, and that is educating the community about the variety of health assets that we have here in Atlanta. In this case, a treatment modality that's widely available, paid for by insurance, but that many of the patients who could benefit from it, like diabetics with ulcers on their legs, putting them at risk for amputation with its high associated mortality rates, or cancer survivors who are dealing with late effects of radiation, that when they get access to hyperbaric oxygen, the statistics show they have a dramatic improvement in their quality of life, if not outright resolution of those issues related to radiation. So I was really pleased to be able to share this information with you. Today's topic is certainly no different. We're going to be focused on eating disorders And when we get into the statistics behind them, I think you're going to be amazed to find out just how many Americans are dealing with some form of eating disorder or another, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, binge purge, binge eating, whatever the case may be. Obviously, all of these come with affiliated emotional challenges that make it very difficult for both patient and their loved ones to deal with this, get through it without some professional expert help. And that's why I'm very pleased to introduce you to Dr. Dina Zeckhausen. She's the founder of the Eating Disorders Information Network, a busy person. So, Dina, I'm very pleased to have you join me in the studio and share some information that I'm sure is going to help folks out there. So thanks so much for joining us in the studio. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, She brought along with her a couple of guests. We've got 
uh, Hallie Udelson, she's uh, working on her master's in public health, uh, has uh, faced with uh, some eating disorders in her past, and we may or may not go into those, but she can certainly talk to folks that, that she deals with through her experience here with uh, Eden um, with some measure of experience for sure that will uh, hopefully help them change their situation. So thanks for taking some time, Hallie. Yeah, thank you. And the incoming director for um, the Eating Disorder Information Network, Sarah Pinnell, is also joining us to, to share her story and then talk a little bit about what they're trying to achieve with this cool organization. Hi. Great to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have you all here. And, and uh, looking at the statistics, I went on to the, uh, the website for the uh, uh, Anorexia Nervosa, the National Association, they have a website, and they had some interesting statistics there. And it talked about the fact that nearly 50% of people with eating disorders meet the criteria for depression. So clearly that's a big factor. Um, one in 10 men actually get treatment. That's kind of troubling. Hopefully we'll be able to, at least for our, our listeners, uh, maybe change that because I'm sure somebody listening today, based on some of the statistics, what was it, uh, um, 24 million people of all ages in the United States dealing with, I mean, that's, that's close to 10% of our population is dealing with an eating disorder. So Dina, clearly it's a big problem. It is a big problem, and and I think that um, the stereotype of eating disorders, as you mentioned, is that like it's wealthy white teenage girls, and it's not really that bad of a problem. In fact, maybe it's just a phase they're going through, and they're going to grow right out of it. Um, but in fact, eating disorders are not just about restricting food. Um, they're actually the most common eating disorder right now is binge eating disorder. And when people talk about the obesity epidemic, they talk about fat people like they're just a bunch of stupid lazy people. And in fact, a lot of people who are overweight are struggling with binge eating disorder. And um, they are eating large quantities of food in secret with tremendous shame about it. And it's very out of control. And um, I think, you know, we need to look at the whole spectrum of eating disorders, uh, all different ages, sizes, weights. And uh, that's what we're trying to address with Eden. Talking about students continuing with some of these statistics, 91% of women surveyed on a college campus had attempted to control their weight through dieting. 91%. Well, dieting, unfortunately, has become the normal way to approach food in our yeah. culture. This is how a lot of us bond. A lot, yeah. You get to a group That's of women together, and they're going to talk about, like, what diet are you on? And mm. unfortunately, it's become so normal that we have lost touch with the wisdom of our bodies. And that is, uh, that's one of the core messages of Eden, and it's the core of the work that I do as a therapist, is helping people to tune back in to their hunger and satiety signals, which... They, they lose touch with as soon as they start on a diet and also separate out their emotions from the food. So they are learning, oh, I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling anxious or I'm sad and then healthy ways to cope with those feelings. I know for me with my family as I was growing up, I mean, food was kind of central to our big uh, nuclear family. We had, you know, aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpa and dad and everybody was around. We all lived, you know, they lived in a close by area. So everybody was together frequently. So thinking about food and it was always a good place, a warm, you know, friendly place. So comforting. Um, and I know that for me throughout my life, you talked about um, not necessarily eating disorders per se, but dysfunctional eating uh Talk about that a little bit, because it's not, it's not just eating disorders, because we can kind of get into trouble when we approach food with kind of a... 
yeah, the if we wrong think, way. Again, the percentage of the population who are struggling with a clinical eating disorder is relatively small. But if you look at who has disordered eating, that's about 90% of us. And if you, I struggled with that from about age 16 to 26, about 10 years. And really, it was about being either on a diet or off of a diet. So I was either being good and kind of restricting my food and controlling my food and thinking about it all the time, or something would shift, the flip would the switch would flip and then I was going to be bad. And while I was being bad, I felt really out of control, but a little bit free of all the restriction until maybe I gained a couple of pounds, didn't like the way I felt or the way I looked and started dieting again. And that does describe a lot of America these days. And again, it's become so normal that that's really sad because it's not healthy. It's not healthy mentally for us. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, I think it's endemic to our culture. Well, take me through the history, you mentioned the fact that you had some dysfunctional eating habits when you were younger and the way you kind of thought about food and so forth, but kind of bringing me up to today, what what prompted you to create this, this cool organization that's hopefully going to have an impact on folks as they approach eating disorders or dysfunctional eating, as you talked about? Well, I think because I struggled some myself, I felt like of all the of all the psychological problems, I can probably relate to this the best. Um, I didn't get a lot of training in graduate school. This was 30 years ago, and they really talked about it like, this is a fairly rare problem. And I took maybe one class on eating disorders, getting my PhD. So I really had to train myself. I went to a lot of conferences and workshops and read lots of books and kind of made myself an expert. And um, back in 1996, I went to a conference out in um, Vancouver on something called narrative therapy. And the core of narrative therapy is about separating out the problem from the person. So there's you and there's your eating disorder that is separate from you. And um, it's a very helpful way to think about depression, addiction, especially eating disorders, because everyone who has an eating disorder knows that this is crazy. And you have these thoughts and beliefs that don't really fit with how you really think and feel. And um, so that was um, that was sort of the impetus for me starting this organization. A lot of people who are struggling with eating disorders um, realize, like, I'm not crazy. The culture is crazy. So maybe we have to do something to try to change the culture. And so that was sort of the impetus for me to come back and um, start something in Atlanta. That was in 96 in the days of the Yellow Pages, if you remember the Yellow Pages. <laughs> and I also knew that people there were lots of great eating disorder therapists in Atlanta, and they were hard to find. And I looked in the Yellow Pages under eating disorders, and it said, see bariatric surgeons oh and, weight, and weight loss centers. Um, so my first task was just to start a website where I could get the, uh, the names and contact information of people who specialized in eating disorders to help people find the help that was out there. And really, that was initially my only sort of goal with this is just to help people find help, to also create a newsletter um, with stories of hope by people who had recovered. Um, Then I started getting calls from some local schools that uh, there were real problems with girls dieting together, bonding around dieting, and um, they wanted me to come and speak to the teenagers. And um, that that was the first step to creating an outreach program. that has morphed over time, and now Hallie's working on the new curriculum for our school outreach program. So mm-hmm. it really it started as just a way to get people to find help, and now we're really focused on prevention. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that, Hallie, um, as it relates to 
the approach to high school, you know, and those young folks that are beginning to do some of the things that we talked about, you know, as we were sitting around before we went on air today, we are talking about some of the, the clubs that get formed, uh, the Cracker Club and different things like that. I was just, I was listening to that and it just kind of makes my heart hurt for these kids because they just don't necessarily realize the, the, the trouble they're causing in their bodies and, and uh, the, the path to unhealth, uh, unhealthy situations that they're kind of facing. So can you talk about how you all are approaching that um, outreach process and, and, you know, how, how do you get those kids to actually pay attention and listen? Yeah, so we're really excited and honored to be designing this curriculum for high school students for both boys and girls. And um, it's actually a form of peer-to-peer -peer education. So the students um, play the role of teacher and teach their fellow students the content of the curriculum. And um, it's, it is a club, so people okay. are involved like on a voluntary basis and kind of offsetting the the peer pressure to participate in the unhealthy dieting club if you will to go the other way and actually participate in this thing to be healthy and make good choices right and i think also it'll help by having a student facilitate the lesson plans it'll help students you know get involved as opposed to it being you know someone older teacher mm -hmm. Um, in the traditional sense, um, yeah, so that they can change uh, the com the community and the social climate of the school, and um, yeah, and just engage in group discussions and some activities on topics that are relevant in their lives. What's the best time to actually start talking to young people about this? I mean, I would assume it's fairly fairly early. I mean, my daughter is 11 getting ready to be 12 she's an athlete she's tall and slim and you know she's like uh, she's actually made comments you know i i i could probably lose weight and i'm like no 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 you could not um you are you are perfect and so i mean it's i'm gonna uh, tell you something that's gonna kind of i'm gonna tell you something that's gonna kind of scare you a little bit <laughs> Um, weightism is the earliest prejudice that occurs. They have done studies looking at four-year-olds, and they show them pictures of different kinds of kids, a kid who may be bald from chemotherapy, a child from, who's in a wheelchair, a child who's a different race, and a child who is larger. And they have the kids rank them in terms of who they want to be their friend. And the overweight kid is at the bottom of the pile. Um, kids know the meanest thing you can call somebody at four is fat. And when you ask children what words they associate with the word fat, they say lazy, ugly, dirty, stop, sloppy, and stupid. And so these, these are the, the core beliefs and prejudices of, of, of all of us. I think we're very unconscious of these biases. And they get transmitted to our children very, very young. Even if you're really aware of how you speak in front of your children, your, your kids are exposed to it out in the world. So um, right off the bat, I mean, I wrote a book called Full Mouse, Empty Mouse that is for like six and seven and eight-year-olds. And it doesn't talk about eating disorders, but it talks about listening to your body, why teasing isn't okay, why you shouldn't comment on people's weight, um, healthy ways to cope with feelings. We need to be talking to our kids about that really young because they're, they're getting these messages every day. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when it comes to the outreach kind of part of your program, 
What are you focusing on from an age group perspective? Are you starting with those grade school kids and, and we have a grade school outreach program and middle school and and high school, okay. um, and Hallie's work, Hallie's group is working on the high school curriculum. So, uh, what do you have to do to get that person that? champion, if you will, that's in the school. How do you identify those people? Do you have kind of a strategy? How do you just kind of go in and in small groups? Or how do you find that champion or two or four, or however many it turns out to be, that will kind of form the nucleus around which you build your outreach? Um, you know, I think that's a good question. I'm not sure that we've gotten that far yet. But um, well, you know, I can tell you what's worked in the past is a lot of times we go in and we, we meet with a, a faculty member, either a school counselor or a school nurse, and usually they know, like, there might be a girl who has, who's in recovery from an eating disorder or a boy whose sister had an eating disorder. There's usually someone who has a personal connection to the issue that they know about, and then if they make an announcement in the school that they're starting something like this, the kids just flock to it. I mean, it, it, because, um, and it's not like the anti-eating disorder club. It's like healthy body image and fighting media messages and listening to your body and loving your body. And those are kind of messages that kids resonate to. So we're, we're not really talking more about like eating disorders because that will turn kids off. But we are talking about feeling good about yourself in our culture because everybody can relate to that. And, and, we also, yeah. and we also have a speakers bureau that will go out to the schools. So we'll send someone out that's in recovery along with like a dietitian or a therapist, a professional, and they'll give a talk in the school. And then sometimes that will get the discussion going within mm -hmm. the school. And then there may be kids afterwards who will come up and want to talk more about this. And those are obviously natural liaisons to start these clubs. And Sarah, you talked about the fact that you dealt with some uh, eating disorder problems uh, as a youngster and that you've been in recovery. Can you share about your story in terms of kind of the evolution? At what point did you or folks that, you know, I would have, I would assume maybe your parents or people that cared about you said, hey, we got to do something. But can you talk about kind of that process for you and how and when you realized, wow, I've got, I've got some problems here. I got to fix this. Yeah. I mean, for me, probably the early stages of it actually started probably around your daughter's age at 11, 12 years old, I started realizing that my body didn't necessarily look like other kids and, you know, being uncomfortable in my body. And, you know, and there was a lot of, with eating disorders, there's a lot more than just the weight yeah. and the, the food. There's other pain. And so that was true with me. There was other things going on in my life that I didn't know how to handle. Yeah. And for me, that turned to kind of starting to, like, restrict what I ate. Okay. And then eventually that also went into eventually kind of starting to purge food and other behaviors um, to, again, to kind of seek control. It was the way – it was a coping mechanism for yeah. me. Um, and I think that's an important part of realizing that eating disorders are more than just about the food and the weight. A lot of times it starts with the dieting. And then it kind of becomes this real coping mechanism. And so by the time I was in high school, um, had a pretty big problem, kind of went into treatment, um, kind of which kind of helped stabilize me at that point. But really for me, it wasn't until actually I got out of college that I really went into recovery. Um, and I kind of at that point worked with a counselor, worked with a dietitian, worked with a doctor. 
I think that's a really key component of having that team aspect yeah. of having a whole group of people. And for the first time, really, were able to kind of explain it to me that this wasn't something bad that I was doing, but really this was a way that I was coping. This was the way that I was kind of surviving. Yeah. Um, but that there were other options, that there was a life, a really much fuller life that was possible outside of my eating disorder. Because for me, that was, again, that was my way that I was surviving, was using this to deal with pain. Incoming director for the Eating Disorders Information Network, Sarah Pinnell, is sharing some information about her story that she experienced eating disorder as a youngster in grade school, going into high school. And can you talk about the what was what happened to start the treatment process for you? Did your parents say, hey, we've got to do something? Did you come to them? Talk about that kind of time. And, and what was the treatment piece like? Was it Did you have to go someplace? Or was this a outpatient kind of a, a process for you? What was that like? Um, there were kind of multiple pieces for me. Um, yes, I had kind of friends and parents who were concerned when I was in high school, and I did do an inpatient treatment for a little, I think was where I would say like kind of got medically stabilized. And how old were you then? Um, I was 16. Okay. And, but unfortunately for me, like, the kind of a lot of the under it kind of helped deal with the kind of weight stabilization and kind of decreasing some of the behaviors so you're getting down really low on your weight at that time yeah i mean i never reached some of like the threshold for what was um for anorexia but i was below i was underweight i gotcha um and so that program kind of helped kind of medically stabilize me but it didn't necessarily deal with a lot of the underlying issues of why I was doing this. Yes. And so for me, unfortunately, I left that treatment kind of with the, I wanted to just get out of treatment. <laughs> yes. And I was well, smart enough to know the right answers to tell people. Yes. Um, and really for me, my eating disorder went underground for a lot of years. I see. And it, I can imagine, I'm listening to you talking about your story and, and, and I can only imagine at, at 16, how receptive were you? I mean, I would assume that your parents said, all right, enough, this, we got to do something. We're going to do something. Is that kind of what happened? I actually wanted help. So you, okay. So I did you, actually, you saw yourself and you were struggling with it and, and you wanted to try to break out. I did. I wanted help and I actually asked my parents for help and my parents were very supportive of wanting to get okay. me help. Um, unfortunately, the initial treatment I got was not super helpful and there is a lot of shame that goes around it yeah. and... A lot of people, I'm among many with eating disorders that are very sensitive and there's a lot of shame around it. And yeah. so unfortunately, the message I received at that time was, again, more of this, this is a bad thing you're doing and I you see. need to stop. Yeah. And for me, that just kind of went, I shut down. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't, unfortunately, for a few more years until I was really willing to ask for help again and found some help that really did kind of finally take some of that shame away and help me to deal with the pain that was beneath it. And what was the reception like? What, what did you experience with regards to your peers when you were in school? Did you Were your friends supporting you? Did you have other classmates that like you were dealing with something similar? Because we talked about the fact that it tends to be almost gamified. We start forming a little club and make it a fun thing. What was that like for you as you went through that and started into your treatment process? I had probably both experiences. Like I, there were definitely peers who were very much 
in it also. Um, there was definitely times where like there were societal pressures of, you know, you go to the lunchroom and a lot of girls were not really eating. Um, so there was definitely, if I wanted to find that, I could definitely find that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I had a lot of friends who were really wonderful. I've had really wonderful supportive friends and mentors over the years who did really care for me. Um, I think a lot of times there's a lot of questions of what do you do? What's helpful? And I think a lot of times very well-meaning friends trying to be helpful and what was actually helpful don't always mix. Because, again, there's a lot of misinformation mm-hmm. about eating disorders and is it about weight and saying, hey, like, why don't you just eat? Like, if you'll just eat, then everything will be okay, which seems very well-meaning. But, again, it's not just about the food. So once you got a little bit older, you talked about the fact that you kind of went underground a little bit. So in your college age, is that kind of when you found a resource that was able to help you move towards more, I guess, uh, a more complete recovery for you where you begin to have a greater sense of peace and, and uh, a acceptance of, of who you are and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing? It was really after I got out of college. Um, after I got out of college, I started working with a counselor who was able to kind of build a rapport with me that I was able to trust. And then she, as I kind of was starting to be more willing to open up about um, the eating disorder and what I was struggling with, she kind of connected me to a wonderful dietitian who was then able to kind of help me on that side of things as well. And along with, a, we were also working with my primary care doctor. And so I really am a huge fan, again, that when you can have that team of support, um, that's really what helped me um, really get into recovery. And again, kind of shifts the mindset of this wasn't something bad that I was doing, but this is a way that I was coping, but there was a life that I could live now that was much better. Cause that was always my fear is that I needed to stop doing this bad thing. But the other option was going to be like, they just want me to get fat and be miserable. And realizing now that that was so far from the truth, that life on the other side of an eating disorder is so much better. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had someone close to our family go through the experience of an addiction, and, and I was thinking about our conversation upcoming this morning as I was getting ready to come in, and, and it, it struck me that there's some heavy similarities between mm-hmm. the two. I mean, they're um, – and interesting to hear you talk about the fact that you actually came to your parents because the, the thought that struck me this morning about that situation was that many people that are facing that compulsion um, know it don't want to follow it and yet it's it's like a tsunami in a way it kind of pushes them forward they kind of it's hard to turn away from it but they want to not just everybody is just kind of just going with it oh i'm i'm i'm, I'm not going to eat i'm i'm going to lose all my i'm going to lose my weight and and just love it. It, it there's a lot of people based on what you're saying and and you yourself were in that situation where this is this is my life and it's making me crazy i i got to get out of this mm-hmm. Denial is a big part of it as well, and the fear of getting fat is a universal. Every person well, I see look who at comes the media, in, we talked about that. Of I mean, course, crazy. There's, there's so much stigma in our culture against being overweight, and a lot of uh, what characterizes an eating disorder is very black and white thinking. So either I have to starve myself, or if I start eating, I'm not going to be able to stop, and I'm going to weigh 400 pounds. Mm-hmm. So, so we do a lot of challenging of the black and white thinking. 
um, and getting them to realize um, there, there is a middle place. There's a way to listen to your body. You're not meant to be fat. Um, listening to your body means stopping when you're full. It doesn't mean just keep eating and eating and eating. It means listening to hunger, but also stopping when you're full and taking care of your emotions in ways that don't involve food. And if you do those things, you're not going to end up overweight. I mean, that's 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 an important message for people trying to get better. Clearly, the the print media, when we look at magazines, for example, fashion magazines are clearly perpetrators of the notion that you have to be super, super slim and and uh, perfect in every way, um, computer enhanced and, and so forth after the photography is taken. Um, and, and so obviously that plays a big role, particularly in our young women, for sure, um, because it's, it's a lot more, um, I, I think it's a heavy influence. You, my, my daughter looks through the magazines that that show like the prom dresses and things like that. You know, she likes to look at those types of young person fashion type magazines. How 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 big of a influence for my audience here in the in the studio? How how big of an influence for for you was that as a young woman? Um, and then also nowadays, it seems like we're trying to turn the corner, at least as on some level. That we're we're for example, they're producing some Barbies, for example, that are a little bit more real, <laughs> things like that. How, how, how is that, is that effective in helping people understand that, hey, what you are, where you are is, is, is okay? I think the pendulum is swinging in our culture. We've got a, a, a generation now of moms who are raising their daughters, the, the um, moms who grew up with, with the sort of twiggy mm -hmm. kinds of uh, role models. And, and we are feeling more empowered now to try to change the media for, for our daughters. Um, but at the same time, this inf the social media influx is something none of us could have ever anticipated. And that can be extremely anxiety-producing for our teens. Um, just be being on social Social media all the time. We know that we have more anxious teens than ever before, um, and and that's what the curriculum is is addressing some of the social media and media aspects to help kids empower them. Yeah, so we actually have some activities in the curriculum where students, um, you know, are asked uh, how they feel about likes or liking photos on Facebook. Um, and how important that is to them and how it makes them feel if they don't have likes on their photos and, you know, how that changes, how, how these photos um, change the way they feel about themselves and um, what they feel is attractive and just kind of getting them to get in touch with, you know, the adverse effects of looking at these photos and how that might impact their self-esteem. And also we get into, you know, editing techniques like um, we have another activity where uh, we have students look at magazine photos and we um, ask them, you know, how do you feel after you look at these photos? Um, wh who's, who's making these advertisements? What is the goal of these ads? And we talk about, you know, airbrushing and yeah. how these aren't even realistic images and how looking at them might affect, you know, how they, how they eat that day or, you know, the products that they buy and just kind of getting them to, like, question those things. So as a pretty recent college graduate, you've probably had social media and the Internet kind of be 
just part of your everyday life, I would imagine. For you, what kind of influence and power did that have in your everyday? Were you one of those folks that if you didn't have likes on content you were submitting that it troubled you, made you feel bad? Um, kind of, which is which is why I uh, I think I refrained from having s- too much Facebook fo- like Facebook activity, but um, I definitely found myself like comparing my appearance to the appearance of other girls on Facebook, and it it wasn't healthy, and I don't think I I, I realized it at the time, but um, you know it, it just it was just another way for me to see you know, how I wasn't measuring up to other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, I think that that was common for my friends as well. Just like looking at these photos and saying, oh my God, like, look, look at how skinny she looks. Look at how good she looks. She's lost so much weight. And, or even like when they see photos of themselves, like, oh my gosh, look at how fat I look. Look, look at my right. fat arms or, and then they end up like untagging these photos. Um, yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's the thing about the social media aspect of a, an issue like this and, and even cyberbullying, for example, as compared to in-person bullying is it gives it such a, uh, an accelerated rate. It's, it's able to give it some serious velocity and it can really grow quickly and having that real time moment to moment element of it where you, I mean, we're, uh, I do the same thing. I'm, Constantly, particularly now that I'm doing shows, I'm tweeting and social media of that too, pulling me in. Um, so it's checking it all the time. So you're constantly getting that kind of feedback. Well, one of the interventions that I do when I'm talking to teens is to really encourage them to try to unplug for an hour or so a day. You and must be like speaking some kind of foreign language. Yeah, they're like, what? That. Are you kidding? And a lot of them are on these group texts where if they unplug for an hour, they've missed out on a lot of <laughs> stuff that's, that's right. happened. And probably that's, the kids are all talking about them while they're not on. You're waking up last week. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing how, you know, nature seems to be the antidote to a lot of this craziness. And when, when kids like go out and unplug, uh, uh, this is something that's been really fascinating to me is I see a lot of teens who do these mission trips. They go to Haiti for a week and they are literally unplugged for a week and their eating disorder disappears for that week. They're not looking in the mirror. They're not Mm -hmm. drying their hair. They are up every day. They have to eat breakfast because they're going to be like building a house that day. They see, they finally understand like food is fuel. Food is fuel. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you weigh. What matters is like helping these people and they feel so fulfilled inside. Their lives feel so incredibly meaningful and they get really depressed when they have to come back into their teen world again of being plugged in and all the anxiety that comes with that and so it's it's so interesting to see that like just plopping them into a different environment they suddenly get remarkably healthy and sane and so a lot of times that like shifts their whole view of like what is life about and that's what we're really getting kids to question is what is your value system and that's part of the curriculum too is asking kids what really matters to you what is important in your life and they're not asking themselves those questions. And when you start to like line up, oh, my, my values are about connections and relationships and being healthy and uh, making the world a better place, then their actions can start to line up with that. But when you're obsessing about calories and fat all day long, you're not al- aligning your behavior with your value system. So you feel disconnected from yourself and yeah. your life starts to feel empty and meaningless. And that's the thing that kind of leaps out at me here is I, I use the the... the 
comment about addiction earlier, and I think that the one common thread between the two is you end up having a lack of self-love. And, um, you know, as it, as it relates to making choices about how I eat, whether it's too much, whether it's refraining and restricting myself to the point of, of being unhealthy, it's, it's out of a feeling of shame or, or self-loathing or just a lack of self-love. And, I, and, and it's hard. I can imagine how hard it is for, the, for a young person in that age, starting with my daughter's age, that 11, 12, preteen kind of age, into a teenager where you're kind of groping for, is this person that I am? Am I okay? Oh, my gosh, my photos didn't get liked, so I must not be okay. I don't look like that person over there who's crazy popular, so I must not be okay. I, I can only imagine how difficult it is to help kind of know knows them towards appreciating who they are and I can see where uh, something like that where they're where they're engaging w with a group of people who are clearly in a bad place that are clearly in you know a far worse situation than they experience in their own lives it must be it restores it's, it would seem some measure of pride and and wow I'm doing something good for these people who really need something so how do you how do you do that if they can't go do something like that how do you instill that measure of I'm okay. I'm doing something good. I'm a good person. I care, and, and therefore I'm going to care for myself. I think just having these conversations with teenagers about, you know, what is important to them, what matters. And I think we as adults have to be really conscious of the ways that we talk to children. Um, when we see a little girl, you're inevitably going to say, oh, you're so adorable. Look, you're so cute. I love your dress. Your hair is so pretty. And, mm -hmm. and for boys, it's like, oh, you're really like building that tower well. And look at how fast you run. And mm -hmm. and so we we encourage boys around their activities and things that they're doing and the sense of mastery. And we encourage girls around how they look and how adorable they are. So, you know, that if that's all we're talking about with girls, then they think that's what matters. That's what's important. That's what I remember. I was a really skinny kid, and um, it, I was just naturally skinny. And people used to always say, "Oh, you're so thin. Just wait till you become a teenager." Like there was this sort of looming <laughs> fat me that was yeah. going to happen down the road, or wait till you become a woman. And <laughs> like, but my identity was very much around being the skinny kid because that's every that's what everybody talked about all the time was my weight. So then when my body did change, which is inevitably going to do, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my identity as the skinny kid. So that's we need to talk to girls about. Um, other aspects of who they are. So their identity is based on internal qualities and not on your body. And I'd also go to say that I think it's also really important, as much as we talk to them about their bodies, is also to note how, as adults, we're talking about our own bodies. Because I think I experienced this, and I know that you know now as I work with clients who experience this, that a lot of times, sometimes people will say, oh, you're really great how you are. Oh my gosh, look at my body and it's horrible. I need to be on a diet. And they're following our example. Those are conversations in our house. Yeah. And I, you know, I think about that. And, and as I have been going through our conversation today and, and, and contemplating our own, I'm like, well, how could my daughter think that she needs to lose weight? But, you know, my wife and I are both have gained some weight over the past year or two, and we talk about it all the time. Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a hoss, that kind of stuff. Ma making light of it, but at the same time, disparaging ourselves and talking about ourselves and framing it in in a body image kind of way. And I can only imagine it's insidious. It's uh, we don't even necessarily think about the weight that that has on our kids' perspective. So, what kinds of questions yeah, do you get from the from the kids? 
Oh, well, I was just going to say, I, I can definitely relate to what you were just saying. Um, I, I guess I grew up in a culture where, you know, people were always commenting on each other's weight. And I remember people commenting on my weight. If I, like, lost a few pounds, uh, you know, people were like, oh, you were so skinny. And I was just a child. And it's like, what does that mean? Like, why am I getting praise for, like, being skinny? Like, what's that about? And it just kept continuing, and it was something that was talked about a lot in my family and just in our community. And, you know, there was just, like, all these fashion magazines with these models, and I read a lot of those magazines, mm -hmm. and it definitely had an impact on me. Um, so you found yourself feeling like, gosh, I'm, I don't look like that. I'm never going to look like that, things like that. Or just that I need to strive to look like I that. See. I saw that as a possibility for myself, and... You know, I, I had, I was known as like the perfect child and, you know, I had to, and I am a little bit of a perfectionist, but um, seeing those images and how people idealized that image made me just want to become that, um, which kind of led to, uh, you know, my own eating disorder, um, which was also fueled by, uh, you know, when I was in high school, a lot of the girls were a lot of my friends had eating disorders and I didn't realize it at the time. And they're constantly commenting on their own bodies and criticizing their own bodies. And, uh, so what were they doing? Were they restricting their food? Or is that what they were doing or, or purging that kind of stuff? Um, I'm not sure about the purging, but there was definitely a lot of restriction. Um, just very meticulous eating and not eating certain foods. And I had one friend who just, I mean, she skipped meals, she counted calories, uh, that kind of thing. I was involved with someone in college who was a collegiate dance squad member, uh, very an athletic woman and, and uh, very, very attractive. And she counted her calories throughout the day and would go to the gym at night and get on treadmill, Stairmaster, whatever it would be. And however many calories she ate, she worked until she got that number on whatever device she was working on at the mm -hmm. gym it was constant and uh, i was like you you look great i and and talk about that because i think that that's a i think that's an important piece so before we run out of our hour we want to try to go towards what do we do for these folks because clearly saying you need to stop that's 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 not helpful um, things that phrasing it from a perspective of this is a choice you're making and it's a bad choice obviously is ineffective and only worsens the problem. So how do we help the person that we're trying to support? How do, what do we, what do we say? What do we don't say? And, you know, how do we approach that side, that conversation and, and how do we interact with them so that we are truly supporting them and who they are? Yeah. I mean, I think a huge part is, starting by just educating yourself about it. I mean, I think if people can kind of understand again, as we're talking about here, what eating disorders are and what they're not, you know, they're not just about food, but they're about other things. But also, again, talking about, I think, again, people's character, um, what people are doing, you know, versus saying, um, you know, you look great, but actually commenting on what people are able to do. Um, and I think, again, there's a shift that happens. Um, you know, I think even teachers and coaches and parents can encourage people to be connected to their bodies. 
Um, I mean, I recently heard about something great in schools where they're doing like yoga for the classroom for mm -hmm. for elementary school kids. And that's a great way to get kids to like connect to their body, to feel what they feel in their body, to move their bodies. Because I think, again, in, with physical fitness, like making physical fitness enjoyable and inclusive so that, again, we learn to connect to our bodies and enjoy being able to move. I think those are things we can do, again, starting with ourselves, being positive about how we talk about our bodies. Um, I think also changing the conversation about, like, these foods are bad and these foods are good. Right. Because there's, I mean, every time I get on Facebook, I see a list of, these are the 10 foods that you yes. need to avoid. Yes. And if you ever these drink These are going to kill you. These are going to make you fat. These are going to yes. cause cancer. If you drink a soda, you're going to weigh 400 pounds. <laughs> yes. And the reality is that's not true. That just breeds fear instead of saying, okay, like, let's have a conversation about what do you feel in your body? Are you hungry? Are you full? And that's how you can start with really little kids asking them, you know, how does your tummy feel now? You know, does your, is, are you full? Are you hungry? You know, asking people to actually talk about how are they feeling? I think, I think girls and women in particular have all the shame around hunger. They don't want to admit they're hungry because if you're hungry, then you're a fat pig. Mm -hmm. So we have to embrace our hunger. We have to embrace our love of food uh, without shame. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's also about getting out of our heads. Um, you talked about the gal who was counting calories all day. Yeah. And um, I think because there's so much information now out about food and so many people trying to make money off of our obsessions with food, with oh, yeah. juicing and um fasting and paleo and diet pills and it's a multi-billion dollar industry and they're tapping into all of our anxieties around yeah. needing to be perfect with food so so as sarah was saying you know if everybody needs something different i know people who are gluten insensitive and if they have bread they're gonna their stomach is gonna hurt but i'm not gluten insensitive i can eat it all i want but you have people who don't have these sensitivities who who jump on the gluten-free bandwagon and then they're then they're back up in their heads again with all these rules so it's about getting out of your head and back into your body. But I think what you're also asking is, what do we say to someone we're concerned about, we're worried about? How do we approach mm. that person? And I think it's not it's about not focusing on what they're eating and what they weigh. Like telling someone they look great isn't going to fix it. And telling someone to just right. eat isn't going to fix it. Right. So what you want to talk about is their health and their happiness. Like you don't seem like yourself. I miss you. You're not joining us for meals anymore. You seem kind of down. Um, you seem distant. Is everything okay? Because it really is an emotional issue. So you connect to them around their emotions and their feelings mm -hmm. and that something feels like it's changed. And then they feel like, oh, you see through the smile that I'm putting on my face that everything's mm -hmm. perfect. You see me behind the mask that I'm perfect. And then you can, then they're more likely to feel like, okay, this is safe to talk about. Mm -hmm. You guys are nodding your heads. So, you know, looking at your situation, Sarah, when you were 16 and, and uh, you realized I have this, this struggle, what, for, the, for that interaction, when you, your friends are around you and, and your family wants to be supportive of you, how, how do you do that effectively? Because uh, as Dina was saying, it's not necessarily you look great and focusing on that. How, how, how are you best supportive of that person to help them along the path of recovery and, and being good resources rather than uh, 
piling on unwittingly with the guilt and shame side of things. Yeah, I mean, I think you can express, I mean, my friends expressed concern about me as a person, not just... And that that resonated with you. Yeah. I mean, I understood that my friends cared about me and they were concerned. And again, not just concerned because of the weight, but concerned, as she said, about my happiness, that I wasn't that I was kind of withdrawing into this. This was consuming my mind. And I think that's a great way to, I think, as Dina said, to approach it is that, you know, you just don't seem like yourself. Like, we want more for you than So this. hearing that helped your heart rather than made you feel bad mm-hmm. about yourself. Yeah, and I think people saying that they were willing to walk through it with me because I think a big message and a fear of mine was also this, like, you know, I was too much, you know, so therefore, like, go get professional help, like, versus saying, hey, like, I care about you. And I want to walk with you in this. How can I be supportive? And I think it's great to, to listen and to ask what their person needs versus again, you know, it, it can be really scary for, you know, the people, the loved ones. And again, it's natural for them to want to be like, really concerned. But again, if they try to control it, that's not going to help. Well, Where yeah. really like saying you're supportive and getting their own, I would say another thing for families especially, getting their own support and their own help. And realizing that it's not just a bad choice that you're making. You need to choose, stop making this choice. It's it's far deeper than that. It's a compulsion. It's a, mm-hmm. a drive that's coming from inside. It's not me sitting looking at a magazine going, I'm going to do that, period, and I, and I just chose. It's not like uh, picking mm-hmm. out a blue dress today versus a red one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's probably an important for the folks out there who, if their loved one is dealing with it, it's, it's deeper than that, as we've talked about. There's some emotional underpinnings that need to be addressed. So how do we help that person how do we help them get to help? Whether it's a, if our listener today is one of those people that's that's dealing with this kind of fighting themselves, or or a loved one, maybe they're a parent, whatever the case may be. How do you effectively approach getting them? I think good getting care? them professional help, like getting them into a therapist that, and finding a therapist they can trust. I think that's one of the biggest things. Having had treatment that didn't work for me and treatment that did, and now being a therapist myself, I think. Finding a therapist that someone can connect to and trust. I mean, that's the number one thing we know about therapy working is if they can find someone that um, they can connect to. And then also, I think having that team aspect of being able to, if possible, to work with a dietitian, definitely working with a doctor. Um, because again, this has a lot of physiological consequences. So you definitely want to have a doctor involved, a psychiatrist possibly involved kind of the whole team. Do you have advice on what uh, what the process would be like, questions to ask, or is it just kind of a matter of sitting down with a psychologist or psychiatrist and getting a sense of, I can I feel like I can talk to this individual or not? Is that is it as simple as that, or are there some, some well, certain questions of, you should kind yeah, of Yeah, a lot on? of therapists are not trained in eating disorders and don't even want to work with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So that's why I started so that's a the clear website. Question. That's a clear question. You start with that. Um, if you're in the Atlanta area, go to myeden.org. E-D-I-N. Myeden.org. And we have a find help section with local resources. Um, if you're not in the Atlanta area, there are two really great national websites. One is edreferral.com, and the other is the National Eating Disorders Association website, which is 
I think nationaleatingdisorders.org. Um, they both have national, where you can plug in your state and your zip code, and they will show you people who specialize in eating disorders who are in your area. Um, because it does really require special training. Um, people who are not familiar with this may, um, if the person comes in and doesn't want to talk about their eating disorder for an hour, the therapist will be fine talking about other stuff. And sometimes it's important to talk about other stuff, but sometimes you really need to get into, like, how did this week go with food? And if you don't specialize in this, you might yourself as a therapist avoid the topic. I see. And when when do you choose inpatient versus an outpatient setting for your professional help? A lot of times that gets triggered by the either the medical professional or the dietitian where their weight drops to a certain level or they may be having medical complications. And it's and outpatient therapy really isn't doing them any good. You know, I usually start with outpatient and if after a few weeks nothing seems to be improving, it might be time to go go to a higher level of care. And there are also intensive outpatient programs before they have to go in the hospital. There are several in the Atlanta area where they can go for group therapy for four or five hours a day for four or five days a week. And that's very intensive, but at least they get to go home and go to bed in their bed that night. Mm -hmm. We've been talking with experts from the Eating Disorders Information Network. And one of the things that we do with everyone we sit down with here on Health Connect South Radio is we want to try to illuminate, if possible, what do you need? And when you sit around the, the boardroom table and talking about uh, our our organization here that's trying to help these folks, if we only had this, if we only had that, whether it's some sort of logistical support, whether it's some sort of funding, whatever, whatever the case may be, what would help you help these folks that you're trying to reach? Um, well, this is a re actually a really tough cause to raise money for. Um, any kind of mental disorder, uh, there's still a lot of stigma attached to it. So we really want to bust through the stigma, r recognize that this is a medical issue. It has the highest mortality of any of the mental disorders. Um, it's more lethal than depression or alcoholism. So we want people to take it seriously, recognize it as a, as a serious medical and mental health issue, and put some money behind it. Um, we tend to get treatment centers as our sponsors, but they don't have lots of money in their marketing right. budgets, and we, it may just be a few hundred dollars. We need major corporate sponsors. We need a Coca-Cola and a Home Depot and a UPS to step up with big checks to support our fundraisers so that we can really do the outreach that we need to do. We don't need to build a building. We need to pay for human beings to carry out these services. These pre prevention efforts really do work, and we do save lives. But uh, we need to take it seriously and, and have have corporations who are not necessarily tied to this issue backing the work that we're doing. You know, all these big CEOs, they have daughters and wives and they have sons who are struggling with this. And we need to bust through the shame about this and say, look, we're, we're willing to put some money behind this. I can see where it would be easy to feel like, as I was saying earlier, this is just a choice. Somebody's just eating too much or somebody's just going on a crazy diet and they're going overboard with it and, and just view it as a choice rather than the the serious emotional issue that it really is. Well, and think about like Sarah's story. She struggled starting at around 11 right. till after that's college. That's a little too early to just be making a choice. That's a couple of decades of her life lost right. to this. I mean, these are, and the, the best and the brightest are the ones who struggle with this. People with tremendous potential. They're the mm -hmm. brightest people. Mm -hmm. They're the perfectionists. They're the most sensitive. And that's why I love working with this population because when they get better, they go on to do amazing things. They start nonprofits. They um, really give back 
back to the world. They're, they're the highly sensitive, compassionate, empathic people who need to be empowered to make changes in the world. So it's a really good investment. And so last five minutes, how do we, what, what do we say to that preteen, to that teenager to make them realize, hey, this is, that, that, that path is not loving yourself. It leads you into, how do you reach that person to kind of redirect the course so that perhaps they can maybe avoid that, that space where they, they get into that kind of uh, darkness and, and the health issues that can come along with it? How do you connect with them? What would you say to that person today if they're listening? I think that there is definitely hope that there's an ability to, a lot of times, again, if there's that pain that feels like it's, that's, you don't know how to handle that. The truth is there are ways to work through that pain so that you're not always feeling that. Would you have advice for them? Who do you, who do they, who do they talk to? They talk to a friend? Do they talk to mom and dad? Who, who know, do they talk they to? They can start by going to someone that they trust, but also asking their parents if maybe they can see a counselor. I mean, it just, it depends on them. If they have a trusted mentor or their parent, they can talk to. But for some, like these issues are really tough to just kind of deal yeah, with yeah, on I your own. Imagine, and yeah. to say that there are people out there who care and that will walk through this with you and that it can it's so much better on the other side because i feel like i didn't realize that like i just thought that the only option was really going to always be to feel the way that i felt and to realize that now like i can really enjoy my body i can mm-hmm. i can i can go work out and feel like afterwards not that i didn't do enough but that i feel accomplished right. i can enjoy my body i can enjoy food I can enjoy relationships because that's another thing is like it takes you out of your relationships. It takes you out of your life and there is hope. Things can get better. I mean, that's the biggest message I would have is that you can really feel good about yourself. You don't have to, the way that you feel now is not the only option and that there is help. There is good help. There are people who care. There are, you know, there are therapists in this area here in Atlanta that would love to help and walk with you so that it doesn't happen. And again, so you don't have to lose years of your life, you know, that, yeah, you know, tell your parent that you need to find a counselor and there are good counselors available. How long have you been able to enjoy the recovery where you've been in this place? Because whenever I'm seeing you talk and, and watching your your expression and everything, clearly you've gotten to a place where you feel some peace inside. And how long has that been for you? I mean, I think it's been a process. Like I started recovery after college, which was about eight years ago. But I think it's really even only been in the last few years that I've started really being able to embrace that's like, oh, like I can really feel those accomplishments and and really enjoy that feel good about my body. Look in the mirror and actually say like, oh, I really like what I see there. <laughs> like, awesome. um, but I mean, that took years into yeah. my recovery, but also you have to consider that I spent almost 10 years in my disorder. Yeah. So, and I don't, again, you don't have to spend 10 years there. Right. You can, you know, if you're starting to struggle with this, the earlier you start, the better the outcomes, the earlier the intervention, that's what Eden's all about too. We don't, you don't have to go in there. Like if you're there, there's help, there's hope. But if you're just starting to struggle, 
get help now. That's great. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that because I think, you know, just suffering from, uh, you know, poor body image or not liking the way you look, it can very easily turn into an eating disorder. And I think it's important to emphasize that you can get help before it turns into, you know, anorexia or bulimia um, per se. Um, And if you're just like not feeling good about yourself, it's really important to talk to someone about it. Dina, Hallie, and Sarah, thank you all so much for making some time this morning. Clearly an important topic. I'm hopeful that we can get some great information into the hands of either parents or maybe even a kid or hopefully uh, one of those executives out there that uh, would like to make a difference in a situation like this that could have far-reaching impacts. Uh, probably not really cost all that much just to support getting some awareness out there. So if you're listening, please share this information with your your social media networks and the folks that you know. You're probably going to help somebody that you care about get some help that will change their lives. And how awesome would that be just for clicking share? So uh, please make a point of doing that. For the folks from the Eating Disorders Information Network, thank you for taking some time to share this great information. Uh, Make sure you uh, make a point to see us all same time, same place next week. Connect with us at HealthCon Radio on Twitter. And uh, if you come up with a question after the fact, we'll be happy to pass it on to the experts that were here today, and we'll get you uh, an answer back real soon. So thanks a lot, everybody. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sharewik.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.